If you were between the ages of four and eight, you were excused to kids' club. morning we're continuing on in the book of first peter we are calling our teaching series living in hope it's called that because jesus is writing to a group of believers in jesus christ who are living in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to their faith peter's putting before them what does it look like for you to stand firm in your faith what does it look like for you to stand firm in your faith and to actively participate in your culture, not to flee, not to be pushed back on, but to stand firm and actively participate in a culture that opposes you. So Peter paints this picture for them that they would understand what does it look like to stand firm in the belief that Jesus Christ is the only way into salvation, to stand firm on a worldview that holds fast to the word of God, And to stand firm in a way that doesn't isolate, but rather actively pursues participating and building the kingdom of God. Friends, we're not called to group up and isolate ourselves into holy huddles. We're called out of the church. We're called into the world. We're called to project the person of Christ to the world. That's why Peter's writing here. That we'd have a greater sense of that. And that we would understand that to live in hope is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of my sins. And that He paid for them in full. And friends, that's why we gather as a church on Sunday mornings. We gather as a group of people who are imperfect. Who don't get it right and often don't get it well but who celebrate the reality that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and that His righteousness is counted to us, that it's imputed into us. So we celebrate that He is good enough even though we're not. And the message we have as believers to go into the world and say, you don't have to try harder. You don't have to work more. Jesus accomplished it on our behalf, and that's to live in hope, is to trust that the salvation granted to me by Jesus is available to all. That the fact that He rose on the third day from the grave and that He's alive is impactful to me and it's impactful to the world. And so we live in hope called out of our holy huddles and into the world Because our God is still at work, and He's still redeeming us, and He's still saving us, and He's still sanctifying us, and He's using us as His hands, and His feet, and His eyes in the world. For if Jesus Christ wants to touch, He's going to use His people to do it. So He calls us to step into that. And as if we've worked through this book Peter started with us with the indicative. We've said this a couple of times. He wanted us to know who we were in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's who we are in Christ that's significant. It's not about me. It's not about my works. It's not about my accomplishments. It's about what Jesus Christ did on my behalf and how that lays the foundation for the Christian life. 
that having trusted Christ, having found salvation in Him, then He moves on to the imperatives that lay on top of that. These callings, if you'll let me put it that way. He calls us as followers of Jesus Christ to pursue Him, to yearn for His Word, to be in community. If you missed any of those messages, they're on the podcast. But that we would be given a mission of putting away sin. And that we'd be given a mission of reflecting Jesus Christ to the world. And as Peter walked us through that, he took us to the next level by teaching believers that they must be submitted to Jesus Christ. And last week he used three really hard illustrations. Life, work, and marriage. And it was challenging. Last week was challenging. It was challenging on me. It was challenging on some of you. You told me. Because it was a real kick in the pants. Because at the end of it, most of us really desire life to be about me. We want life to be about me, what I want, what makes me comfortable, what makes me happy, what goes along with my desire. And Christianity pushes back on that. Jesus pushes back on that to say it is no longer about you. You do not sit on the throne of your life anymore. He does. And so we submit our lives to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a follower. To submit yourself to Jesus Christ. To exalt Him. That means I'm diminished. It gives us the words of John the Baptist. He spoke in John 3.30 when John the Baptist said, He must become greater, I must become less. And it's the same in your life and in mine. For Christ to be exalted, I've got to become less. My life has got to become less about me. It's got to be less about what I want, what I desire, what I expect. And it's got to become more about Jesus, what He desires, what He expects, what He hopes for. That we would decrease, that He would increase. And so Peter starts to put flesh on what the submission looks like in this next section for us. So let's turn to 1 Peter 3, 8-17. through If you've got a Bible, pull it out. We want you to know we're in the Word of God. We teach the Word of God. If you are, don't have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 1015 to make it simple. Verse 8 reads this way. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Finally, Peter says, all of you, or all y'all, if you're from the south or moving there, got to learn it, Eric, y'all. It's going to be critical to your acceptance in that culture. Y'all. Finally, all y'all, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And what Peter does here is he gives believers five attitudes that we reflect towards one another that show submission to Jesus Christ. That these attitudes actually testify to one another that we are submitted to Jesus Christ. And this is what he points us to. He starts first with unity of mind. Another version says like-mindedness. This is the most important. It starts off the list because if we have like-mindedness as we approach one another, 
The hope would be that as I approach you, that Ben is being decreased and Jesus is being increased. And if we meet in that spot where we are like-minded, where in your life you're being decreased and Jesus is being increased, there's a unity that comes there because we're exalting Christ and we're putting him first and foremost, not only above our individual interests, but above our group hope. That we are like-minded, we are joined together to exalt Jesus Christ, to put Him first, to put His kingdom first. And in doing so, it simplifies everything. It simplifies everything because it's not my agenda versus your agenda. It's not, you want this, I want this. It's what's Jesus want? How is Jesus exalted in this relationship? How is Jesus exalted in this community? Friends, we gather this morning like-minded to exalt the name of Jesus Christ because of what He did at the cross on our behalf. And our community has to reflect that for the world to understand what we believe. Peter puts that before us. It's living out the passage we read together last week from Philippians 2. That we would have the same mind, the same love, that Christ would be exalted and not me. We are called to like-mindedness, but we're called to sympathy. What Peter calls us here as believers as an act of submission is to step into one another's pain. Because as we walk through this life, as we walk out our faith, not only are we like-minded and putting Christ first, but some of us are going to get really wounded along the way. And so rather than going, oh, that's nice. I hope you feel better. Pray for that. We actually step into each other's lives. We get close. And that when they hurt, we hurt. Because that's the body of Christ. That this is an act of submission for us. To move into one another's pain. That Christ would be exalted. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6.2. Saying, bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We've talked about one another's in the scriptures a number of times. Bear one another's burdens is one of the more numerically, it happens more than most of them. What happens when I leave a script and try to make up words? It happens a lot in the Bible. Bear one another's burdens. And we're called to brotherly love. It means as a church, we're called towards a familial love for one another. And by that, I don't mean the love that I might have for like my brother who we kid about and we sarcastic with or my little sister that I like to punch in the car when nobody else is watching. It's, it's not that kind of chiding love. It's this brotherly affection that the Bible paints for us that suggests that we are family, regardless of our background, regardless of our social class regardless of our ethnicity or political leanings, that we are a family together in Jesus Christ. And that we honor each other and love each other in a way that's accepting of one another because we're family. And that there ought to be a unity within the church and an affection towards one another in the church because we're family. And he presses on that further when we're called in the next phrase to be tender-hearted. Are you ready for this? This word tender-hearted, if you break it down in the Greek, which I don't always do, but here it says this word literally means to feel affectionately towards one another. 
Would you believe the Bible actually calls you to like one another? You know, my mom used to say, you don't have to like them, but you do have to love them. Well, that's sweet. But the Bible actually goes further and says, like them. Like, treat people with a tender heart. You don't just acknowledge people and be like, hey, how's it going, Joe? We don't really get along, but I just want to acknowledge you. Sorry, Joe. I just realized you were sitting there and I waved at you. I like Joe. I like all of you. Bible calls me to. But that we would be affectionate towards one another. This doesn't mean we hug each other, we kiss one another. It does mean, though, that we care about one another, that we're engaged in each other's lives, that we move close enough towards one another to actually know what's going on. This ought to be a safe body where we are encouraged around each other, built up around each other, and we know one another because we're called to be tender-hearted. And finally, Peter would say, we're called to a humble mind. This takes us back to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, that we would be humble before one another. That we don't walk into a room and categorize people and think, well, I'm better than you. My opinion rules. Or, this is going to go my way because I'm louder. But that we would approach each other with humility, exalting the others. That this kind of submission exalts Jesus Christ. That Peter would call us to these five attitudes that would reflect our submission. That unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That this would be the testimony of believers to the world This is why Jesus says that they will know you are my disciples by their love. And Peter puts some more verbiage to that here. That they would know, the world would know. That the world would watch us interact. And how we treat each other, love one another, would be our testimony That they would know that He is our King by our willingness to regularly die to ourselves. That they would know that He is our King. That we would exalt Him first. And this is our testimony of how we engage one another. He takes it a step further in this passage, giving you a view of submission towards one another. And now He's going to walk it a step further out to talk about what does it look like then to show submission, to engage a culture that is hostile. What does submission to Christ look like then? And he gives us this picture starting in verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. By the way, I had to look up that word this week. Basically, it means to insult, to make fun of. It's not just that you would... Uh, To pay evil, evil would be an action-oriented word. To revile would be more uh, to poke fun at, to use words. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Brothers and sisters, when you're shown evil, and you are reviled, when people mistreat you, when people insult you, as a testimony to Jesus Christ, how are we called to respond? 
you think this is true at your workplace? Do you think this is true in a carpool line? Do you think this is true on a parking lot? Friends, we're called to submit our lives to Jesus Christ. That when people do evil to us, when they would insult us, that rather than responding back in our flesh, that we'd make much of Jesus Christ, not much of Ben. So you cut me off in a parking lot. I want to make much of Ben in that moment. I want to let you know what Ben's rights are. I want you to know how Ben feels. And friends, it doesn't matter what, how that reflects on Jesus at that moment. It's about Ben. And when Peter says, do not replay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, keep in mind, these are not people who didn't know what these words meant. This is a guy who was thrown in jail. This is a guy who was probably beaten. This is a guy that history testifies was crucified upside down. These are just people who faced petty words like you and I face. Be a blessing. Jesus taught this clearly in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 5.44, he said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do we follow Jesus? Do we heed his word? Because if we do, we have to love our enemies. We have to. It's a command by Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And Paul taught that in Romans also. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And by the way, this whole back half of the Romans chapter 12 takes on the same subject. Everything following, therefore, make your lives a living act of worship, testifies to our willingness to submit to Christ, that we love those even who challenge us. This is our calling. When you're mocked for loving Jesus, be a blessing. When your worldview is disregarded, be a blessing. Jesus said, love your enemies. He didn't say tolerate them. Friends, this is a high calling. Warren Worsby in his commentary in 1 Peter wrote it this way. Dr. Worsby said, as Christians, we can live on three levels. We can return evil for good, which is the satanic level. We can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the human level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. And Jesus was the perfect example of this approach. Jesus was the example of that approach. Jesus, whom we're called to be like, was the example of that approach. Friends, do you have the strength to do this? No! Of course you don't. But we have a living hope, do we not? Is Jesus alive? Yes. He rose from the grave. And the Holy Spirit is alive and active and moving and giving us the strength. Gives us the words. Gives us the heart. Gives us the attitude. 
We submit to Him, and He rises to the top in those moments. Friends, Jesus is still at work. And this is the level we're called to live on, to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us. And to strengthen his case, Peter quotes the book of Psalms. These next three verses in Peter 10 through 12 are a quotation from Psalm 34, 12 through 16 that says this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Old Testament puts before us these realities that God would call us to live differently. And keep in mind, when the Old Testament paints this picture, Jesus Christ had not died for your sins yet. And yet now he has. So when we are submitted to Jesus Christ, when we recognize Jesus Christ as judge, judgment is no longer mine. Why? Because when I make it mine, it's about me and not about him. So to exalt him, i got to make it about him and not about me. Judgment belongs to Jesus My calling is obedience, that I might obey God, that I might lead a life that submits to God, that reflects God, and shows the world the grace and mercy that is available at the cross. Years ago, I got the privilege of starting a Young Life Club in Sherman, Texas. There was a college or a high school student that I got to know. I walked up to him every week and said, hey, Charlie, how's it going? And every week he looked at me and just gave me the stiff arm. Weeks, I would drive up to the school. I kid you not, this is an honest confession. I'd pull into the parking lot and I'd cry. Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to take these high school kids being mean to me anymore. I'm not ready for it. And there were weeks I drove away. I'm just confessing I was a pansy. But week after week, I continued to pursue this kid. And finally, like at the end of the year, some 50 weeks of me just saying hi to this kid, and he'd given me the Heisman, finally walked up to me and said, why are you always nice to me? See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel played out. That's how that kid was going to understand grace and mercy, to understand that a God who he's also been given the Heisman to would still pursue him. And those pursuing hands and feet will be ours. They're going to be ours. That we would pursue people for the cause of Jesus Christ. That though they give us the stiff arm, they know God pursues them. Peter continues in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And this is when we're reminded of the testimony of Paul. If if you put all of Paul's stories together, you can kind of get to this point. Paul says, you want to put me in prison? Awesome. I'll convert all of your guards. 
You want to beat me? That's fine. I do not consider the sufferings of this present time will compare with the glory that will be revealed. You want to kill me? Awesome. I'll go be with Jesus. You want to let me live? Awesome. That's Christ. It'll be more fruitful labor for me. Do you see Paul living that out? Quoting Romans, Philippians. This is Paul walking into life saying, it doesn't matter what you do to me. Christ will be exalted. Paul lived out a living hope because Jesus resurrected from the dead. He lived out a living hope and he reflected Jesus. That's why the guards converted. Because they saw an active living hope within him. That's why so many people converted. And friends, we have the same calling. Whether we're in the church or walking with folks who don't know the Lord, we submit our lives to Jesus Christ and we reflect Him. That's how this passage sews back together. That that we submit our lives with one another and we submit our lives to Jesus when we're out in the world that Christ would be exalted all the time. This is the implication of everything we walked through last week. And as Peter finishes verse 14, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And friends, it's a terrifying calling. I was scared to walk onto a high school campus. I did college ministry for years, and I'm scared to walk on a college campus. Friends, when I walk into relationships now, sometimes I'm afraid, oh, please. And why? Because I make it about me. Do you know for years I really struggled to be in front of public groups of people? Public speaking is not a natural gift to me. And along the way, I recognized that the biggest issue I had was how I made it about me. When I was serving in the church in Memphis, one day I was supposed to go up and do a Christmas devotion. And I walked in front of a group of people, there was like 1,500 of them, and I froze. And I didn't know what to say. And when I finally realized I had written down everything word for word and I could read my notes, I dropped them. And I was terrified. When I walked away from that moment, what Jesus taught me in that moment is that my prayer life in public speaking had always been, Jesus helped me to look good. Now, I didn't have a bad thought about that. I wasn't trying to be selfish, but Jesus helped me to perform well. And suddenly you get to the point of realizing, having made a fool of myself publicly multiple times, Jesus, it doesn't matter if I look well. May you look well. If you've got to make me look like an idiot... To exalt the name of your son, Jesus Christ, go nuts. And it changed my perspective and freed me to walk into these moments. Because guys, this isn't about Ben. It's about Jesus. It's about what he did at the cross being sufficient for all of us. Peter reconciles fear in verse 15. When he says, don't be afraid. In 15 he says, but in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And this is our perspective shift. When I think it's about me, I get afraid. But when I think about Him, and I make it about Him, when in my heart I honor Him, and I call Him holy, the set-apart one, when I honor 
Christ, it becomes about him and not about me. And that's the calling in every one of these submission moments. That when you're engaged, somebody you don't agree with, make it about him. How? Don't be afraid, honor Jesus. If you're going to engage someone who doesn't know Jesus, who's going to be hostile to your faith, and you want to love them even though they're going to insult you, how do you do that? Don't be afraid. Honor Jesus. Make it about Him. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's why He brings us to this point in 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter says, lead such a countercultural lifestyle and then be ready to defend your hope. Be ready to defend why you believe in Jesus. So here comes the hard question. Can you make a defense? I've been reading this book, Seeking a Law, Finding Jesus by Nabil, Nabil Qureshi. Ironically, I got it from Paula Gross, who got it from Brad Gross. So it's running around through our church fantastic read. But I want to challenge you with something that Beale writes in here. He talks about engaging Christians. This is what he says. He says, regarding Muhammad, Westerners rarely know anything. I could say whatever I wanted. I could say whatever I wanted to about him and others would believe me. Of course, I didn't try to deceive anyone, but it's not hard to make a case for Muhammad to the average Christian simply because of their ignorance. He tells multiple stories of engaging Christians, asking them questions that they did not know the answer to, and it wasn't hard. And in fact, he actually comes back to say that the questions I learned, I learned in the third or fourth grade, that what I learned as a child in Islam disarmed the faith of many adults. He goes on to tell the story of a gal named Kristen. Sharing, Kristen starts sharing with him about good news. You want to applaud her faith in that moment. You're like, go, Kristen, tell him about Jesus. She shares him with him about Good Friday. Comments that she's excited to celebrate that Jesus died on the cross for her sins. So Nabil asks, how does his death on a cross take away your sins? And friends, this is crushing to me. Because this isn't about Islam. This is not about her knowing Jesus, or knowing Muhammad, knowing Islam, knowing the nuances of Islam. This is about Jesus and her faith. And this is how she responds. Well, that's what they told me at church. I don't know. We don't actually go very often. I I never ask. Friends, we're called to be smart about our faith. It's one of the main reasons Mark Bauer has a class back here during the Connection Hour where they talk through some of these issues that you'd engage your faith. I'd commend this book to you. He does a fantastic job. By the way, he does know Jesus. And, And he walks you through his path of knowing Jesus He walks you through all the arguments he makes for Islam. He walks you through all the questions he asked and the resolution he came to. Friends, we've got to be able to make a defense to anyone who would ask about the hope that we have in Jesus. But Peter continues to say that our defense must be gentle and respectful. Why? Because we're representing Jesus. That too often Christians have bought the idea that we win the argument and lose the person. Friends, we've got to be gentle. We have to be respectful in verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
And this is our calling. That as followers of Christ who call Him King, that we would live our lives in a way that would exalt Him. That we would submit to Him and put Him first. That we would place ourselves underneath Him. And that we'd live out our faith towards one another. That we would show Christ to one another. That we'd live out our faith to our hostile world and show them Christ. And that we, the picture that people would get from us would be Jesus and not Ben. Because it's about Him and not about me. This week I was studying and I saw something I never noticed before in the Scriptures. It called me in and I started looking more. Walking through this passage, I kept thinking about Jesus. So it made me start reading through. One of the things I picked up on is that when people look at Jesus, people always loved his actions. And they always struggled with his words. Now I'm not talking about the Pharisees. I'm talking about normal people. They loved his actions. And they struggled with his words. Friends, that's the life we're called to. That we'd lead a life that our actions would testify to Jesus Christ. That we would do good things. That we'd be the great neighbors. That we'd be great co-workers. We'd be great church members. That we'd honestly be reflecting Christ all the time in our actions. And just like Jesus, when people ask you why, just like Jesus, you tell the truth. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. They'll struggle with what you say. That's what we're called to. God calls people to Himself. We're called to be obedient. Verse 17, Peter closes this section by saying, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And friends, may that be true of us. That we become such good practitioners of submitting our lives to Jesus Christ, that we become such great practitioners of reflecting Jesus to the world that we could suffer. And I'm reminded of the disciples who counted it such an incredible blessing to be worthy of being beaten for Jesus. Friends, we serve a living God. We serve a living God who's alive. Let me pray. Jesus, we give thanks that you are alive. That the grave was empty. Because of that, we have great, great hope. Not just for this moment. Not just for eternity. We have great hope for every moment you'll call us into. Father, that we would become great reflections of Jesus Christ to the people in this room. Because the people in this room need to see Jesus. All of us. That you'd become our great hope as we engage a world that's hostile to our faith, that doesn't agree with us. Why? Because the world needs to see pictures of Jesus. I'm tired of them seeing Benny Hinn and Cruffalo Dollar and Joel Osteen, all these other false prophets, Father, who teach and slander and get wealthy. Father, may they see a people who are willing to suffer and struggle 
to cling to your truth and to cling to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ because you're alive. And may you always give us the strength we need to do it. That in moments of fear, we would honor you. God, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.